You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Thank you, Emily, for uh, filling in for Keegan today and leading us so well. Thank you, worship team. Yeah, praise the Lord. Um, comes all the way from Princeton, Texas, right? That's, uh, no, they go way back to First Baptist McKinney days and uh, Oklahoma Baptist University days. And so I said in the early service, we're just thankful to know that Keegan has friends, right? Uh, I don't feel sorry for him this morning, okay? I think he's on a cruise. And so... Uh, Glad he's able to get away and thankful that Emily could come and be with us. Again, I want to say how grateful I am that uh, the Riggs could be with us today. Uh, Shelly quickly alluded to the fact that uh, I have been to West Africa and uh, it was a great opportunity in 2017 to uh, lead a team uh, over to uh, what is uh, sometimes called the Slave Coast uh, of West Africa. And um, I spent some time there in uh, what the IMB would call a cluster meeting and uh, we took a small team from our church, and we joined up with some folks from a few other churches and facilitated this cluster meeting, and it was just a great opportunity uh, to come and serve alongside them. We didn't uh, go for tourism purposes, but we did get to spend a little bit of a day in Ganvi, which is like a uh, floating fishing village in West. It's really amazing. Um, you think about families here all having cars. Well, they don't have cars. Their family, they all have boats. The, the dad, the wife, the kids, they all have boats, literally. And their roads are uh, channels in, on this lake. It's incredible. Um, and we get to see some other amazing things. But most importantly, get to spend time with some of our, our uh, missions friends and their colleagues there in West Africa. It was just a great, great opportunity. And so I'm uh, so grateful for them and for their friendship and their ministry. And um, just uh, a, a privilege. Uh, and so I hope that you do realize the connection. When you give regularly here at First Baptist Church, a portion of what you give in undesignated giving supports missionaries like the Riggs. Uh, you should see them as the face of, of our missions partners this morning, okay? Uh, and when you give particularly to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, uh, you for sure are giving to our missions partners like the Riggs who are serving uh, on the front lines in uh, global evangelization, and so we're just so grateful for them. Well, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 8. We're in a continuing series through uh, John's gospel. We actually started the series back last December, uh, and we carried through the spring. We took a, a brief pause in the summer for a summer in the Psalms, and we've now returned to John's gospel, and we're in chapter 8. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we made a quick family trip to the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, we went to watch a UT volleyball game for Addie's birthday, uh, who just turned 13. We stayed at a hotel that was on campus, uh, and I took this picture from uh, our room. Okay, I know I just triggered some of you with uh, that picture this morning. There were some people hissing uh, in the early service today, but that is the tower uh, that, of course, is, is lit up uh, when Texas has a significant win. Uh, you know, like we went to watch the defending national champion volleyball team play. Um, but I digress when I, you know, mention those sorts of things. Uh, anyway, uh, th that is the iconic tower that stands some 300 feet tall. And it marks the skyline of the UT campus and, of course, the city of Austin. But what you may not know is inscribed in marble on the front of the, the, the main structure of that tower are the words of John chapter 8, verse uh, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. 
Now, there is no reference there on the building to these words being spoken by Jesus. There's no attribution to uh, those words coming from the Gospel of John. It, I guess, is assumed that the reader will know the source of those words. In fact, I was talking to a uh, campus missionary one time uh, who served on the University of Texas campus, and he said that they would sometimes use those words uh, as, uh, as a way to start a gospel conversation. Uh, and he said it was interesting whenever they would ask people, uh, who do you think said those words originally? Uh, typical responses would be Aristotle, uh, would be uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and so uh, it was just interesting to be able to, to bring that back to uh, the gospel and uh, the fact that those are words actually spoken by Jesus. And so what did Jesus mean when he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free? Now suppose uh, the University of Texas uh, chose those words to promote their ideal of academia, uh, that education can free us from the bondage of ignorance. Uh, and I, I love education. Uh, I believe it's important. Uh, the Bible is definitely not an anti-education book, uh, but the idea that our greatest bondage is ignorance and that our greatest need is for a well-rounded uh, liberal arts education is not something that Jesus ever taught. Okay, UT is certainly not alone in wanting to co-opt Jesus in support of their mission. Uh, In fact, many people have quoted those words. The truth shall make you free. The truth shall make you free. Probably not even realizing who originally spoke those words and the context in which they were spoken. And their understanding of that phrase is determined many times by their understanding of what true freedom is. There's a lot of confusion today about freedom. Some people would say that freedom is the ability to do whatever I want to do. Just the ability to do whatever I want to do. So that is in turn determined by what they think is the nature of our bondage. So what is freedom? What is the nature of our bondage? Does freedom mean having the government get off my back and leave me alone? If so, then the truth will set you free becomes kind of a libertarian type slogan. Does freedom mean having independence from corporate America and the 1% at the top of the economic ladder that seems to to run everything? If that's the case for you, then the truth shall set you free becomes like a a left-wing Occupy Wall Street kind of slogan, right? If you're a kid or a teenager here this morning, maybe you're thinking freedom is being able to do what you want to do instead of what your parents tell you to do, right? It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but we have to ask ourselves, is ignorance... Is government overreach, is corporate power, parental control the true source of our greatest bondage? Can freedom be defined educationally, politically, economically? I mean, one of the things that we say in in, in talking about uh, financial freedom is the freedom to be able to to do things you might like to do with your resources, your financial resources, right? A lot of people are in financial bondage, living barely paycheck to paycheck. And so we refer to that as a form of freedom. If I just had more money, I would have freedom. But is that really what Jesus is talking about here? So let's see what he is talking about. And what does he mean when he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We pick it up in chapter 8, verse number 31. So I hope that you'll follow along there this morning as I read. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin." 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. If you pay attention to these few verses and you look at kind of the, the lay of the land, we preachers sometimes call it, as we're looking at a text, we want to obviously look at it from a, a big picture kind of perspective and then we continue to, to focus in. And you'll notice this a paradigm here of, of what sometimes is called sandwich psychology. You familiar with that? If you need to give someone some especially bad information or bad news, then you sandwich that between two pieces of good news or, or more pleasant information. So it's like good news, bad news, good news. We have a little bit of that going on here in John chapter 8, 31 through 38. And I want you to notice, first of all, the good news that says, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word. In verse 31, Jesus is responding to those who have believed in him. At the end of last week's message, in our text there, we read in verse number 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so now this is a continuation of that conversation. Jesus now engages those who have made some outward display or sign of faith or belief with a challenging and yet a gracious invitation to true freedom, to true liberation. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus gives these professing believers a condition, if you abide in my word. Now he's saying that true freedom only comes to those who remain in his words, who continue uh, in the truth of the promises that he has made, the revelation that he has given of who he is. What is Jesus' word that they must abide in? When we think of the word of God today, we typically think of our Bibles, right? This is the word. But I think Jesus means much more than that. Of course, at this particular time in history, the historical context of of where we are today, they didn't have a a complete Bible, the complete canon of Scripture like we do today. And so what what did Jesus mean? Was this just a reference to the Torah, to Tanakh? What what, what was he talking about when he said, you must abide in my word? Well, in, in the broader context of John's gospel, Jesus himself is the word. Remember John chapter 1. This is where we started back last December. Uh, coming into Christmas, which is a classic Christmas passage. We've preached it in the context of a series of messages called Vintage Christmas because it says in John chapter 1 there, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And it tells us later, the Word became flesh. That's a direct reference to Jesus Christ as the Word. And so in the broader context of John's gospel, Jesus himself is the Word. In the closer context of the teaching that Jesus has done in this particular section, his Word includes his self-identification. That that was where the, 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 the conflict often came, was this confusion over who this Jesus really is. And there's still confusion today. You'll find people today with varying opinions on who Jesus really is. Some would tell you that he was just a great prophet. Some would tell you he was just a good teacher, a good moral leader. We believe that he was God in the flesh, right? Very God of very man. So when we look at the closer context of his teaching here, his word includes his self-identification. Now, what has he said even just, just right here in the context of this conversation? He said, I am the light of the world. 
Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Along with his precious promises, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever follows me, remember last week, will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And so those who have heard the words of Jesus, have responded in in, in belief and faith, must continue to believe what Jesus has said about himself and the promises he has made based upon who he is. Because he himself is the source of living water. He can promise rivers of living water will flow from those who come to him. Because he himself, remember last week, is the light of the world. He can promise the light of life to all who follow him. So here in verses 31 and 32, Jesus says that those who abide in his word will show that they are truly his disciples. Just like our day, many people have professed to be disciples of Jesus, but there is a distinct difference between someone who merely professes to be a disciple and someone who truly possesses faith. Let me say it another way. There's a big difference between just a professor of faith and a possessor of faith. You probably know within the context of your own life, whether it's in the workplace or maybe you have family members even, you, you know of people who have professed They say that they're a follower of Jesus. They talk a good game. But when it comes right down to it, they don't possess living faith. Okay, And you you begin to understand and see that because there's a lack of fruit being born out of their lives. Okay, It'd be a lot like me standing up here this morning. I can tell you with my mouth that I'm a firefighter. Right? I can probably even get some firefighting equipment, and I can, I can put on a uniform that would make me look like a firefighter, but that doesn't make me a firefighter. So there's a lot of people like that, even within the context of churches today. They might look the part to us. They might talk a good game, but they're not truly possessors of faith in Jesus Christ. And so you'll, you'll notice that the more that we move through John's gospel here, the, the more that the, those, those, those blurred lines become more distinct. They become more clear. And so you think about uh, the fact that Jesus explained this in the parable of the sower, the four soils we sometimes call it, recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in that parable, the seed of the word, remember, falls on four different types of soil. There's the path where it is eaten up by the birds before it can take root at all. There's the rocky soil, uh, which only has, it's, it's shallow soil, and so it withers in the heat of the day, under the heat of the sun. Then there's the thorny ground, where it is choked out by the thorny vines and, and weeds and thistles and so forth. And then there's the, the good soil, right, where it puts down deep roots and brings forth fruit. And so what is clear, but is often missed by us, is the fact that the soils are already in the condition they're in when they, when they receive the seed of the word. So what that tells us is the Holy Spirit is the one who must do the preparatory cultivating work in the heart to prepare the soil for the word that it might bear fruit. It's one of the reasons that we often say as we gather for church, have you come here this morning prepared to hear the word of God? Prepared to hear the word of God. I know some of you, if you're honest, we've lived it, okay? You're just like, preacher, we're doing good to be here this morning, okay? If you knew what we had to do at our house to get here this morning without, you know, a homicide uh, happening on the way, you'd just be glad we're here, right? But I hope that your, your, your practice generally is that you are prepared. Your heart is prepared to receive the truth of the word of God. 
that you come with an eager anticipation for what God is going to do in your life through his word and by his Holy Spirit. That you come looking forward to that with an expectant heart. Well, in today's text, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are mostly like the path in the parable of the four soils. And their hearts are hard to Jesus' words. They're they're consistently resistant to the words of Jesus. Remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he turns away sad because he had much wealth. He's like the thorny soil, choked out by, by, by possessions, worldly things. Jesus speaks the way he does to this crowd because he's concerned that many of them, perhaps even most of them, are like the rocky soil. And they will not endure under the heat of persecution. And so to be clear, it's not that we become Jesus' true disciples by remaining in his word, but that we show ourselves to be true disciples by abiding in his word. It's not that Judas Iscariot, who professed and, and, and was seen as a disciple, right, was ever at one point a true disciple of Jesus and then fell away from true and saving faith. It's that he never was a true disciple, but only had a false and empty faith. So I wonder this morning, where do you stand? Where do you stand? Are you a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you just someone who professes to be a follower of Jesus Are you abiding in his word? That is, are you trusting in his promises, believing the gospel, persevering in faith and who he is and uh, and what he provides for us in himself? Those who abide in Jesus' words, those who are truly his disciples will know the truth and the truth will set them free. You say, how so? Is this going to happen just because I, I, I you know, stick, stick around Jesus long enough that he finally shows me the, the tricks and the techniques for achieving real freedom? No, Jesus, Jesus will make clear later in this passage and repeatedly throughout the rest of John's gospel that he himself is the truth. He is the one who sets us free. He says in John 14, 6, remember, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he also says right here in this text, in verse 36, so if the Son, notice in your Bible, that's a capital S, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But then there's some bad news. That's good news. If you abide in my words, you're my disciples. There's some bad news. He says, everyone who commits sin. And before you look at that and think, well, he's obviously talking about just them, right? Just like those religious leaders that... No, he's talking about every, everyone, okay? So he says, at the mention of being set free, you'll notice this group of professing believers, they pause. And the reason they do is because they're good Jews. They are children of Abraham. They've been in, they, they, they would say they've not been enslaved to anyone. Now, obviously, this was not true on a physical, political level, right? Abraham's children had been slaves in Egypt, were made slaves uh, again in the Babylonian exile some 1,000 years later. And here, at the time of this passage, in this cultural context, the Jewish people were under Roman rule. They occupied their land. They, they exacted heavy taxes from them, restricted their freedoms. And so, but when the Jewish people protested uh, that they had never been anyone's slave, they probably weren't thinking about politics. No, they were thinking of the well-known, widely accepted idea that if someone was a true child of Abraham, a disciple of God, a student of Torah, he was truly and inwardly free. He could never be enslaved to anyone. So in a political sense, the Jewish people were hoping, longing for Messiah to bring them freedom. 
But they knew Jesus meant something different, meant something deeper, and that's why they resisted. And so to their protests, Jesus responded with some sobering words. This is what we might call today a truth bomb. And the fact that the words truly, truly in the ESV are reported here should, should remind us of something. When you see words repeated in Scripture, it's critically important. It's for emphasis. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm about to give you some mega truth. Some mega truth. I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Jesus' use of truly, truly, it's used to introduce this teaching as absolutely true and reliable and something that we need to hear and understand and believe. Everyone who practices sin, literally everyone who does or makes sin a present ongoing action is a slave to sin. If you pay attention at all, you know that our culture celebrates its sin as a true badge of freedom. It's like, I'll do me, you do you. That's freedom. I can do whatever I want to do, and I can be whatever I say I am, and that, that's viewed as some kind of freedom. John Calvin said it well hundreds of years ago. He said, the greater the mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically does he extol free will. Sin is not a toy that we play with or a pet that we keep. It is not freedom. It's a harsh master that enslaves us, and only Jesus can set us free. Everyone who sins, that's the bad news. That's all of us. But then there's good news. There's good news. If you look at verses 35 and 36, the good news is, so if the Son sets you free. It said Jesus can and does set us free from sin. Jesus said the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So understand this. The position of a slave within the household was an insecure one is what he's saying. So failure uh, in duty or even the sale of the the estate uh, could put the life and the status of a slave in serious jeopardy. But the son of a family is much more secure. The son has the security of belonging to the master of the estate as family, as an heir. His place is secure. And in the case of Jesus, he remains the son and the heir forever and ever. And so as Jesus does throughout John's gospel, he connects who he is with how he benefits those who trust in him. As the son who remains forever... He is able to set free the slaves and make them sons just like he is. This is connected very clearly with the, with the writing of Paul to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 8 where he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. That's familial language, isn't it? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's powerful. That's powerful. If you've ever wanted to say amen, that would be a great spot. So how does Jesus set us free from the slavery of sin? Well, he does it in three distinct stages, we might say. There's our justification, 
our justification. That is, he sets us free from the guilt and the condemnation of sin. He does this immediately when we, when we come to true faith in him. That's why scripture says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Prior to that time, we'd be under the just wrath of holy God. All right? And what Jesus does in the gospel, in dying in our place, is he reconciles us as sinful human beings to holy God. It's something that only Jesus Christ could do. That's our justification. Think of it this way. It's being made just as if I'd never sinned. But then there's our lifelong sanctification. He sets us free from the enslaving, dominating power of sin. By the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who dwells within us, we are free to walk in obedience in newness of life. Free to consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, some of you are old enough to remember a guy named Flip Wilson. Right, Flip Wilson had a line. He would often say, the devil made me do it. Do you have any people who professed faith in Christ have used that line in a bogus way? You give in to temptation, you sin in some way, say, well, the devil made me do it. Trust, listen, here's the thing. The, the gospel truth in this area is this. The devil can't make you do anything. He doesn't have that ability. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, Scripture says. All right? So, so that's a cop-out to say the devil made me do it. No, what you need to be saying is I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that prideful attitude that I'm so prone toward. I'm dead to that sexual addiction that I'm so given to. I'm dead to that because I'm alive unto God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's our lifelong sanctification. It's a process. That's why I often tell people, look, the older you get and the more you walk in this journey of faith with Jesus Christ, I hope and pray that your best days are not in the rearview mirror. You'll talk to a lot of people and it's like, wow, I remember back then, I, man, I was really walking with you, man. That's great. But my open prayer is that your best days and your walk with Jesus are ahead. Because by his grace and the power of the gospel and his Holy Spirit indwelling us, he is transforming you day by day, even moment by moment, into the image of Jesus Christ. That's our sanctification. And then there's our coming glorification. He sets us free then from the very presence of sin. I don't know about you, but I know that I still live very much in the presence of sin because I'm still living in a very broken, sinful world with all of its temptations and all the garbage, right? But there's coming a day when that will not be true. Sin and its desire will be removed completely, permanently, and perfectly when 1 John 3, 2 is true. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So the basis of all three of those stages, for lack of a better way to put it, of our freeing from sin is the death of Jesus Christ in our place on the cross. And the one who sets us free at each stage along the way is Jesus himself, our redeemer and our king, our living hope, as we just sang a moment ago. And those who have come to know him truly are those who remain in him. You've been released from the penalty of sin or being freed from the power of sin. will be freed from the presence and the passion of sin forever. 
And though we are experiencing this in a, as an ongoing reality, it's a process. It's still in progress. It is really a finished work. It's what we call the already but not yet. It's a fixed reality in the eternal plan of God. And that's why Hebrews 10, 14 says, by one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In Romans 8, 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Mm. That's good news, y'all. That is good news. But then there's some bad news. Remember who he's talking to here. A group of people who are largely resistant, consistently confused about who Jesus was and the good news that he came to bring. Notice what he says in verses 37 and 38. But my words finds no place in you. See, sadly, this is not a fixed reality for everyone. This justification, sanctification, glorification. Not even for all professing Christians, believers. How do we know that? Many call Jesus Lord, Lord, to whom he will say in the end, depart from me for I never knew you, according to Matthew 7. I think he's talking about those who merely professed with their mouth faith in Jesus Christ, but it was never a reality. He's talking about those who have a spiritual pedigree, those who have a list maybe as long as their arm of good things they've done, places they've been, where areas where they've served, how their families serve, all the different things, much like the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. If you look at Matthew 7, you find some of the most sobering words in Scripture. There will be those who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do this? Did we not do that? Look at our pedigree. And he will say to you, I never knew you. I I never knew you. And for these people, Jesus has these words in today's passage. I know. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know that that's what you're appealing to. Your heritage. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from, with my father, and you do not know what you have heard, uh, and, and you do what you have heard from your father. So they're making a, a pretense of salvation based on a hereditary claim, essentially. Jesus acknowledges their hereditary claim, but then points out the incredible inconsistency of claiming to be a child of Abraham while at the same time seeking to kill an innocent man who is speaking the very words of God. In other words, who you are really, really are, is shown much more in your desires and your actions than in your DNA. George Hutchison said this in his commentary. He said, The true difference between spiritual slaves and those who are made free cannot be drawn from the enjoyment of external privileges of the church, which the one may partake of as well as the other. Now, maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you've been hanging around church your whole life. Maybe your story is that you were drugged to church your whole life. You know, you always say, Man, I had a drug problem. My mama drugged me to church every time the doors were open, right? That's great. But are you truly a possessor of faith in Jesus Christ? 
There's not one of us who will be able to stand before God someday and go, well, you know, but I was born into a Christian home. That's not it. But, 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 you know, I'm a middle-class American, and I always voted a certain way. That's not it. Jewish people, they were worshiping in the temple. Many had memorized, could recite, I'm sure, sing large portions of Scripture. They had the external privileges, but not the internal reality of those privileges written upon their hearts. So I wonder today, do, do you know the truth? Do you know the truth? The question we have to ask ourselves is a deep, penetrating question. Does his word have any place in us? We've heard his word with our ears, but have we received it into our hearts, into the very core of who we are? Jesus has some very sobering words for those who have no room in their hearts for the word. They're not children of God. Though they may be external children of Abraham, and he will make it abundantly clear later in this chapter whose children they truly are. He's hinting very strongly at the truth already at the end of verse 38. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. You'll notice in this text right here, and really moving forward through John chapter 8, the rest of the chapter, we see what the truth does. Because it helps us, gives us the truth about our resistance. So maybe you're a lot like some of these religious leaders, and up to this point in your life, you've been largely resistant to the claims of Christ, to the gospel itself. Maybe you're a lot like the Pharisees of Jesus' day who would say, we, we, we got our righteous act together, man. We can cross all the T's and dot all the I's. We keep the rules. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're playing the part of the modern-day Pharisee, and you're thinking that by your best efforts, your good behavior, because you're better than most people, you're good with God. This passage makes it pretty clear that's not the case. It reveals the truth about our confusion of what it takes for a person to be reconciled to holy God. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. It gives us the truth about our search for identity. It gives us the truth, most importantly, about who Jesus is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was he who knew no sin that died in our place that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That Jesus. Do you know the truth? Their heads bowed, our eyes closed for just a moment this morning. I want to invite you in our final few moments together today to ask yourself a really, really important question. Are you walking in the freedom that can only be found through faith in Jesus Christ? You point to a time in your life when you turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. that's not true for you or you're uncertain about that, uncertain about your relationship with God, we would love to show you. We have leaders who would love to take you aside, show you from the word of God how you can know that you're in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not based upon anything you've done or ever could do. 
based solely upon what Jesus Christ has done for us. In a few moments, we're going to together observe the Lord's Supper. I just want to simply say that we practice what is often referred to as a close communion, not a closed communion. It's not, uh, it's not required that you be a member of First Baptist Church. It is important to us, however, that you have a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. And there'll be some further explanation about the significance of this time and what this means to us as a church family. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can know true freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from the bondage that sin brings. And it's not because we've been through some self-help program and become in our own efforts a better person, uh, a moral person. It's because of what you've done for us laying down your life for us. You died in our place. For that, we give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. It's in the powerful and precious name of Jesus we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.